Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. Yeah. Uh, My name is Jacob Warren. I serve as one of the pastors here. Um, Grateful to be here with you this morning. Uh, If you're new, welcome. We exist as a church for the fame of Jesus in in all things. And this past Sunday, we celebrated 10 years together as a church. Yeah. Uh, Part of that, uh, we're just remembering our kind of our story, where we come from. We're planted 10 years ago in a living room not too far from here, and uh, this past weekend we commemorated that kind of church birthday by uh, pledging our commitments to give towards something we're calling the Rooted Campaign, which is uh, a $54,000 giving initiative that's going to get all the financial things uh, all together, all the physical needs we need to be able to move in and worship together at 584 South Riley. And uh, I know that there's some of us that haven't filled out uh, uh, commitment cards or been able to even give our lead gift quite yet. Um, and if you're brand new with us, know that I'm not trying to get you to give money right now. I'm just trying to tell you some good news because we as the family of Veritas are about this, you know, active giving as a church body. We're just really glad that you're here. I have some fantastic news for all of us. Um, as of the end of this past week, we as a church have committed to give over $46,000 and $31,000 of that has already gone into the bank. Yeah, $31,000. I'm incredibly humbled by this. Um, again, uh, being a, a helping a piece of the church uh, to be able to see this initiative go forward, uh, I never could have imagined 10 years ago coming down to help lead worship on a Sunday morning in a CrossFit gym uh, that we'd be able to uh, see a church grow, see a church um, move um, from a, a living room to a CrossFit gym to a wedding and event center to a school for how many years we've been here to finally having a, a place of our own. I could never have dreamt or imagined what Jesus would do in and through this church with the, the baptisms that we've seen, the stories of reconciliation and hope and uh, the, the breaking free from addiction and loss and pain and marriages restored that I've been able to see over the past 10 years. I'm just incredibly humbled by all of that. And we're continuing that work together and investing in the future of our church through the Rooted Campaign. And so thank you for giving. Uh, if you have questions about the Rooted Campaign, come talk to me after the gathering or one of the other elders or people that have an I, I Can Help badge. They could actually help you uh, get connected with someone who can uh, uh, answer questions that you might have. But uh, now with that out of the way, uh, we are going to turn our attention back to the book of Ephesians. And so uh, today we're going to fi- finish Ephesians chapter 2 together, where Paul's going to remind this Ephesian, mostly Gentile church, just how crazy it is that Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled and brought together into one church united by Jesus. And, and when I say crazy, I really do mean crazy. Like, it's hard for us to imagine the hostility and animosity that existed between Jews and Gentiles at this time. And, uh, you know, pastors and teachers like me like to give, uh, you know, silly examples of the, the ways that uh, we see animosity or hatred or, you know, uh, maybe, maybe it's the Duke fans and the UNC fans here in the state of North Carolina kind of hating each other or whatever, or maybe you're from another state and it's Oklahoma and Texas. I know that's near and dear to Ryan's heart, you know, I just love some, uh, some OU football. Uh, maybe it's Republicans and Democrats, or maybe it's public school moms versus private school moms, but th- when... Jews and Gentiles came together. There was no shaking hands after the ball game. Like the, 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 to, to get a sense of this tension, there's a quote from William uh, Barclay writing about this tension. He says, The Jew had immense contempt for the Gentile. And the Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. Now, I don't like Duke fans, 
but I don't want them to actually go to hell with the devil, you know what I mean? I mean, they call themselves blue devils and all, but I don't want that. Other fun facts about Jews and Gentiles at the time. See, if you were a Jew, you couldn't help a pregnant Gentile woman in her hour of greatest need because it said that you could be uh, caught helping bring another Gentile into the world. Even contact with Gentiles could make you unclean so you couldn't attend the temple. Just imagine brushing up against someone else or engaging with someone during the week, and that meaning that you can't go to church on Sunday. That's what it meant for the Jewish people. There's even a sign inside the temple that says uh, that it had a court of the Gentiles. It had an inscription that forbade any Gentile to enter into the other places of the courts under the pain of death. And they've like dug these signs up uh, over the years and discovered these signs, uh, quite literally saying, if you walk through this wall, if you walk through this next veil, we will murder you on the spot. Like that's quite literally what these signs said. And here's the, like, the coldest thing that I could find about this uh, in all of my commentary work and study. If a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, you know what they didn't have? They didn't hold a wedding. They held a funeral in her honor, or his honor if it was a guy getting married to a Gentile girl. This was the equivalent of death. So it makes sense in this passage that we're about to read together. Paul wants to describe the state of the Gentiles as separated alienated, strangers, and those that are far off, both from God and the people of God. See, the hostility and alienation was real, and that's why Paul's going to begin this section with the word remember, because Paul wants the Ephesian church and us as well to remember just how baffling it is that at the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, that Jesus creates the church by destroying the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile, not into a Jewish church and a Gentile church reconciled to God, but one church founded in him. Vertical reconciliation between us and God and horizontal reconciliation between us and our brother and sister. That in the gospel, Jesus destroys any barrier that might separate any barrier that might divide or anything that might produce hostility between us as followers of Jesus. And this isn't just the Ephesian story. This is our story as well. So we see three things that Paul traces our spiritual biography through. He's going to say who we once were in verses 11 through 22, what Christ has done in 13 through 18, and now who we have now become in verses 19 through 22. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Ephesians Uh, Chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, we'll read the whole passage together. God's very word to us this morning, Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, but what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray to ask God's help one more time. Jesus, we come before you, and we come before your holy scriptures, your inspired word, these words from Paul um, that that are just more than words from Paul. They are your very words to us this morning. God, I pray that we would subject ourselves to these scriptures. God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that the truths of this passage would land on us as fresh good news of remembering um, where we came from, what we were called out of, and what we've been called into because of what you have done for us, Lord Jesus. God, I pray um, that we would leave here this morning um, freshly aware of the grace that you have poured out and freshly aware of the reconciliation that we have experienced not only with you, Jesus, um, but, but between each other um, if we are indeed in Christ. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage begins with a, a therefore, and you know, uh, you've probably heard this before if you've been in church any length of time. But we, if there's a therefore in the text, you need to know why, what it's there for. And so that means we've got to back up and do a little bit of a rewind here and see what, what Ephesians chapter 2 began with. If you're familiar with the New Testament scriptures, Ephesians chapter 2 is a famous passage of scripture. And it begins with this bleak picture of our sad spiritual state before Christ. Ephesians 2 begins with these words, you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And that was us. We were all there. We were all dead in our transgressions. We were all dead to God in our sin. But Ephesians uh, 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. Yes, Jesus died because he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God uh, made us alive together with Christ because it is by grace that we have been saved. And what does that mean for us now? This passage in Ephesians 2 verse 10 uh, says that we are his worksmanship. We are God's craft. He's created us. He's molding us. He's shaping us, created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us to walk beforehand, that we should walk in them. So we're made to walk in the good works that God has called us to. See, this passage as well reflects a a similar metering where Paul focuses on who we once were, that we were not God's people, that we did not have God's promises, and we were actually without God in the world, But Jesus has done something about it. He's brought us peace. He's made us one. He's given us access to God. And now what we have now become, if we are in Christ, we are citizens of God's kingdom. We are members of God's family and stones in God's temple. So let's dive into what Paul reminds us about who we once were, that once we were not God's people. 
See, Paul reminds us who we once were primarily by saying who we were not. We were not Jews. I don't know if there's any Jewish people or people of Jewish descent here in the room this morning. Uh, you are privileged with that, that status of being, having the status of being God's people. And Paul reminds the Corinthian readers that there was a time when their Jewish-born Christian brothers and sisters would have called them nasty names on the playground. Look at here in the text, it says that they were once called the uncircumcision, right? Just imagine like the whole nana nana boo boo your name's uncircumcision, like on the playground, like that's literally what they would call and jeer at each other back and forth with. I know it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it would have done the job to offend the other person. And if you know what circumcision is, which I won't explain that process right now, you'll know that it is made in the flesh by hands, right? It only affects the exterior body. And this is what Paul says here for a moment, signifying that circumcision wasn't just uh, it, it had spiritual significance, but it couldn't do the full work of what God wanted it to, to point to. God ultimately wanted circumcision to point beyond itself for this need to cut sin off of the body, to be free from sin. But instead, circumcision was seen as a sign of the covenant, this promise given to Abraham that God was going to bless and make him a great nation through him, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. This foundational distinction between Jew and Gentile, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. See, the problem with circumcision is that ultimately arose was not the distinction that God made, but the sinful pride that eventually grew out of the Jewish people. Instead of recognizing that God ultimately wanted them to undergo a circumcision of their hearts, sin being cut off from them. They distorted their privilege and responsibility to be a nation of priests and took pride in themselves instead and despised the Gentiles. But then Paul regresses back to his point here and then adds another, remember, to remind us that there was a time when we were separated from Christ. Remember, if you and I here in the room aren't of Jewish descent, we are the Gentiles. There was a time when each of us was not saved by Jesus. We were not a part of God's people, and we were on a road straight to hell of our own choosing and sometimes our own making. This is an awful predicament to find yourself in, and this is not the end of the bad news from Paul. Paul says that we're not only not a part of God's people, but we were without God's promises. And without Christ and without the promises of the Old Testament, we were hopeless, separated from God's people and the covenants of the promise. See, you and I can relate to this a bit in seeing that like, all of the Jew Gentile people had no reason for actual hope. See, you and I, we, we place hope in things that we know that there's going to be an end to, that there's going to be an answer to eventually, that there's going to be a resolution to it at the end of the road. Maybe you're in the middle of school right now, and, and you're just looking forward to that finish line of being able to walk across the stage, grab that diploma, or celebrate the graduation, and then walk into the next phase of life. I was talking with the family this morning. Uh, there's a lady in the church, she's pregnant, and she's feeling in her body. You're, she's always hungry, you can't get comfortable when you're sleeping, you're chronically uncomfortable in any situation, whatever. But one day you have the promise of being able to hold that child in your hand. One day it's going to be worth it. See, the Gentiles didn't have any reason for hope beyond this life. It was just, this is it. Common Greek saying at the time was, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
a whole 300 episode on, 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 on display, is very much alive and well right now in our current culture because we think that we have to have every single experience humanly possible in order to have any amount of worth in our life, have any hope in our life. Think about the way that our culture even views death, right? That we're all, we can dodge the bullet of death in our life. But no, death is always coming for us. For all of our dieting, our workouts, our excellent medical care, death is always coming for each and every single one of us. See, without the promises of God to lean on, to hope in, that a Messiah one day might come to make all things new, that there would be hope of life beyond the grave without those promises of God to lean on, See, we were hopeless, completely hopeless without the promise of God. And Paul finally concludes this reminder of who we once were with this last conclusive statement. Not only were we hopeless, but we were without God in the world as well. Seeing ourselves in the shoes of the Gentiles before Christ. Not only were we separated from God's people and promises, we were separated from God himself. See, without God, we, like the Gentile Ephesians, always resort to doing what we think is best, right? Putting ourselves in, in the place of God, resorting to our own wisdom, or conforming to the kind of cultural, moral norms around us, or being unable to see our actions in the condition of our hearts as actually sinful before God, because without God as a part of the equation, I mean, what does it all matter anyways? See, we must see ourselves and our story in light of the Gentile story here because this is our story. Before we trusted in Jesus for our salvation, we were cut off from God and his people. This is why we make a regular, and it's good for us to make a regular habit of remembering who we once were. Like, church, do you remember your story? Do you remember the place in time when you were without hope, where it felt like you were cut off from God's people, where you were cut off from God's promises. Do you remember that? Do you remember that that was a reality for you? I think that we should, because what this does, and we do focus on that, even though that some people would say, no, don't ever think about the past at all. No, Paul's reminding them of their past here for a purpose, and the purpose here is that if we remember who we once were, we can remember now what Christ has done about it. And it fills us with gratitude for what Christ has actually done. And, and in order to more fully appreciate the good news of the gospel, you have to know our sad story, state in sin before it. And this is where we move into verses 13 through 18. So what has Christ done? And what has it accomplished? Let's look back at verses 13 through 18 in the text together. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you and I who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. There's only one thing that could reconcile us to God. The blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. For He Himself is our peace. He is the peace offering who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances so he might create in himself, in himself one new man, not two, not three, not four, one new man in place of the two so making 
peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. This section, there's, we see four main things that Paul tells us about what Christ has done. Christ has brought us peace. He's made us one. He's preached peace. And he's given us access to God. See, first we're told that Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, we must recall here what is, is meant by the blood of Jesus. Paul's referring here to the crucifixion of Jesus on a Roman cross. His execution at the hands of, of, of unfaithful men, of people accusing him of things that he was not, of crimes he was not guilty of. This is what is referred to here by the blood of Jesus, his death on the cross. And what Paul is claiming here is extraordinary for all of us, but in particular, those of us that are gathered here that are not followers of Jesus. This is the claim of Paul. Paul is claiming that the death of Jesus on the cross wasn't just a horrible tragedy of a Jewish teacher being lynched for his beliefs. I think a lot of people in our culture want to just chalk Jesus up as a good moral teacher. A lot of people just want to say that Jesus you know, was a nice guy that had some nice things to say, and he got murdered for it, and it was a tragedy. Paul's saying, no, this is not just a tragedy. This is the plan of God for all time. That Jesus would be the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the earth in order to do what? Bring us peace. To make us one. To accomplish what we would call the good news of the gospel. Paul is saying that the death of Jesus on the cross was the only way of making peace of any sort in this broken and divided world. Jesus is the and his death is the only answer to the problem of sin in this world. See, Paul is claiming that Jesus Christ, as our peace, also too, is the greatest unifying force on the planet because he is the only unifying force on the planet. No cultural or ethnic identity, no ideologies or human systems will ever compare. Kingdoms will rise and fall. Thoughts and ideas will evolve and change, but there is only one truly ever unifying thing that will never fail, and his name is Jesus. See, Jesus will never fail because he cannot fail. He is not just merely man, not just a moral teacher. He is God come to us, God incarnate, which means he's perfect, which means he's unchanging, he's never failing. And if Christ is our peace, he brings us peace from both those who are close to him, his covenant people that he had chosen, and those who are far off, ultimately to himself. And he doesn't just bring us reconciliation with himself, that me and Jesus can have a good thing going on, that me and Jesus can have right relationship. He reconciles us to each other as well. He brings us reconciliation with each other. In verses, in verses 14 through 16, we see that Christ has made us one. Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace. Not that he just brought it. He is our peace. He's the object of our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, how did Jesus destroy that dividing wall of hostility? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed 
in ordinances. This is the Old Testament law he's talking about. That he might create in himself, in Christ Jesus, one new man, one church, in place of the two, so making peace. So like I mentioned earlier, in the temple there once stood symbolic barriers with the court of the Gentiles and the further courts where the people of God would be able to enter and worship. There stood these symbolic barriers between God, His people, and the Gentiles. But through Christ, it's not just the, the wall that excluded people from getting into the place of worship that was knocked down. The, the wall, even to God Himself, has been knocked down. The hostility that because of our sin that once stood there has been abolished because we have been welcomed in by Jesus into this place where we can dwell and commune with God, even the sense of the idea of the holy of holies where we get to commune with God himself. See, verse 16 makes this news wonderfully clear. The peace that Jesus has achieved reconciles us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, Christ has made believing Jews and Gentiles into one. And this is important. Like, we can trace this through church history. In the early church, there was not Jewish churches and Gentile churches, and then like the ones that were started in the the Near East, Asia area, Asian churches. That wasn't a thing. There was one church. It was Jesus' churches. Only Jesus' churches. Churches that were united around the name of Jesus and the work that he had done. This is like we confess in the Nicene or Apostles' Creed, and we do this regularly. We confess one holy, universal, and apostolic church made up of all believers for all time, united under Jesus as our head. Now, I know you might be thinking, okay, if there is only one church united under Jesus, why are there all these churches out there? Like, why are we so divided? I can't begin to answer that question for you without tracing through all of church history and all of the ways that the church itself has, been an imper- has acted in imperfect ways. But that does not negate the fact that we serve a perfect Savior. That we all attest to the one Christ Jesus who is and has made us one. And that might seem a little mystical to you, but it is true. The church is one, even though we be many. And that is an eternal truth. This is the good news that Jesus has proclaimed and preached peace. And now we, it is our job as the church to preach this peace as well. You might be asking the question, well, how did Jesus preach this peace? One commentary said it like this. Remember to Isaiah 52, where the Lord proclaimed, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. And he also promised in Isaiah 57, 19, peace, peace to those far and near. See, Jesus was speaking through the words of Isaiah. Christ was this beautiful evangelist proclaiming peace with God to all the nations. So after his death and resurrection, Jesus repeatedly appears to his followers saying, peace, peace be with you. This is a far more significance than just a customary greeting from Jesus. However near or far away from God, we, whether Jew nor Gentile, through Christ we can have access to God. And this is therefore, there is no room for racial pride or pride of any other sort because there is a glorious reconciliation 
in knowing Christ. Finally, God, through Christ, has given us access to himself. See, in verse 18, Paul says that for through, for through him, we have both have access in one spirit to the Father. See how unifying all this language really is. About, it's not just two churches. Jesus comes to create a Jewish and Gentile church. No, he creates one in himself. But not just, there's not just uh, two ways to go about getting to God or communing with God. No, there's one. We, the many, have access through one man, the mediator Christ Jesus, to God directly himself as our Father. That's really good news. It's really good news because even though um, churches are fragmented, also families seem and tend to be fragmented as well. And there's good news that Christ preaches to us this morning for our own families. If you have a strained relationship with your family, now through Christ, you can have God as your Father who loves you, cares for you, welcomes you into His family, the church where we can be loved and accepted as co-heirs, not perfectly with one another, but we are loved perfectly by God with He as our Father. Maybe you feel misunderstood, that no one else could ever know what you are going through individually. Christ, if you know Him, He is your Savior, and He's your friend, and He's your brother. He knows what you've endured in this life because in His humanity, it says elsewhere in the New Testament, He was tempted in every way, as we are. Every way. Maybe you feel alone, Maybe you feel like, you know, you're all alone in this world and you're trying to do your best. But guess what? If you've been one to Christ and one into his family, you've been one to Jesus. And if you've trusted in Jesus, you can cling to his promises. Jesus says before he ascends, he'll never leave us or forsake us. That he will be with us forever. And we can cling to the promise that we'll have this and that he will be with us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be our helper and our comfort and our guide. See, Paul, after extolling the wonderful work of Christ and what he's done for us, Paul then turns in the last two verses of this passage to telling the Ephesian church who they now have become. And Paul's going to illustrate this with three different word pictures. He says that uh, those who are in Christ are now three things. One, citizens in God's kingdom. Two, members of God's family, and three, stones in God's temple. Let's see it in the text one last time in verses 19 through the end. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. It's good news. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. First, Paul says that we are citizens in Christ's kingdom. And if we're citizens, that means we are not illegal immigrants in the kingdom of God. We have full status as his citizens in God's kingdom. Of this, John Stott writes this, We no longer live on a passport in the kingdom of God, but we really do have our birth certificates in Christ because we have been born again in this kingdom. We've been adopted by God, and because of this, we've not only been born again, adopted by God, we are citizens of this kingdom. We really belong 
to this kingdom. We should not feel like imposters in the kingdom of God because our identities are no longer primarily found in anything other than our allegiance to Jesus. Everything else is secondary. Not our jobs, not our rank, not our popularity, not even our ethnicity. Maybe you try to find your hope in your job. But guess what? You've got a new job. You've now been commissioned by Jesus to take the gospel to the nations. Maybe you try to find it in your rank, maybe in the military. A rank in Christ could not be any higher than it is. We are now sons and daughters of the Most High King of the whole universe. Can't get any higher in rank than that. No ladder to climb in the kingdom of God. That's it. You're there. Three, maybe try to find your sense of worth and your popularity. But guess what? No amount of Instagram posts, no amount of trying to be nice before other people or serving them in order to get like the social capital with other people can ever gain you the status that you already have with God. You are the apple of his eye. He's constantly with you. He, he loves you. He's for you. He's welcomed you into his family. And even our ethnicity, our ethnicity isn't unimportant, but it is secondary in our identity. See, God has made one new man in place of the two, and so our ethnicity is of secondary importance. See, there's nothing more important than our, than our identity as followers of Jesus than being just that, followers of Jesus. So we're citizens in God's kingdom, but secondly, we are, as followers of Jesus, we are members of God's family. See, Paul moves from the picture of being citizens in a kingdom to being uh, belonging to uh, being a member of God's family. He uses the term his household. See, citizens of the same country might uh, enjoy the same privileges, right? fight wars together, live alongside of one another in harmony, enjoy the same benefits, and unfortunately pay the same taxes. Right? Can I get an amen, right? But families, they take care of each other in a different way. Families take care of each other in more intimate ways because they are united more than just the flag that they salute, the thing that they point towards as their ideals. They're united by blood. They're united by a sense of loving care that they bend towards one another. They're united by their shared identity. And the blood that we are, that flows in all of veins of followers of Jesus, it's the blood of Christ. Is the blood that was shed on the cross for us. That is the blood that we are united by. That is the family that we are one into. So it should be in the church of Christ that we should be to the watching world the examples of what Jesus said. The world's going to know them by our, their love for one another. So in the church, in this people that are called to one another to serve and partner and link arms and ministry alongside of one another, we should be the first to show affection and love, and support to one another. And every Christian brother and sister, also too, outside of these walls, that are a part of the church of Christ, that the same blood of Christ that was shed on the cross that unites us to God, unites us to them as well. If they are truly followers of Jesus, those are brothers and sisters out there. But we should take care in this church special care to pray for, serve, and see the needs of each other met here in this body. See, one of the ways that we've expressed this idea at Veritas is by saying that because of what Jesus has done in uniting us, we should act like the family that we already are in Jesus. And if you're acting like a family, that means you take an active role 
in that participation in, in that family. No, and no one is ever just a passive member in a family. There's always dishes to be done, right? There's always chores to be taken care of. There's always belly laughs to be had with one another. There's always opportunities for us to lean in. When someone is sick or sad or needs help, we rush to the needs of our family, do we not? Or should we not? We absolutely should. And because of this, uh, one of the ways the church historic has done this is through formal membership in the church. And here at Veritas, we call this partnership. This is a way of saying that we are here. We are a part of this family and formally saying we're committed to each other. The vision and mission of Veritas and under the care of the elders to advance the gospel together. So if you're interested in that, talk to one of the pastors here. Talk to somebody at the Connect table after the end of the get- gathering. We just had a partnership class this Sunday. Six people want to become people, uh, uh, partners in this church. But we have another one coming up here soon. You can find information on our website for that. But beyond being members of the household of God, Paul concludes this by saying that we are, with one last word picture, like stones being built and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. First, he mentions the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And I'm going to stop there for a second. That might be kind of shocking that Paul would say that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Shouldn't Jesus be the foundation of the church? I think Paul's correct here. Uh, to, to, he doesn't correct himself as much as saying what he means by saying that Christ is the cornerstone after this. Christ is the cornerstone. So what do we make of the apostles and prophets being the foundation that's being laid here? He's saying that they are the first of the spiritual stones. And I think it's in reference to what we have right here sitting in your lap, hopefully, the New Testament scriptures. This being the foundation of our faith, these writings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the letters that we've been given to instruct us into all godliness and to show us the will of God for us. The New Testament then means that the church stands and falls on its faithful commitment to the teachings of the New Testament scriptures, never adding to or subtracting from, but seeking to live in accordance with under the guidance of the Spirit. Also, Paul makes sure not to only mention the New Testament scriptures, but careful attention to say that Jesus is the cornerstone. He makes this abundantly clear. Again, John Stott is helpful. Quote, as building depends on both its cohesion and its development for being tied securely to its cornerstone, so Christ the cornerstone is essential for the church's unity and growth. Unless it is constantly and securely related to Christ, the church's unity will disintegrate and its growth will either stop or run wild. This is why we as a church do the practices that we do. Like, this is the reason why when we're preaching the Bible like this on a Sunday morning, we're never done with a passage until we have explicitly shown how this passage of Scripture helps us show more about Jesus, about what he has done, and why this is good news about Jesus. Because Jesus is our cornerstone. We must all pay careful attention to making sure all aspects of our worship and fellowship are centered of, on, on the gospel. Are your relationships that existing within this church centered on the gospel? And what that's going to mean is that for some of your relationships, they're going to be Jesus-only relationships with people in this church. I know all families have crazy uncles, and we like to think that we're not one. But you probably are, right? And so that means that you're going to have relationships in this church, if you're meaningfully connected here, 
that are going to be Jesus-only relationships. Like the only thing I have in common with this person is that they're a follower of Jesus, and I am too. He's a Duke fan, and I hate that, and I still love him, right? I'm still going to pray for them. I'm going to serve that, that person that uh, plays for the different team that I, I don't like. I'm going to serve them in, in, in meaningful ways. Bring them a meal when they're sick. Come pray with them when they're down. I'm going to come ask them how they're doing. Even though like, we don't share the same interests and hobbies, those Jesus-only relationships will be a testament to what Jesus says about the church, that the world will know who we are by our love for one another. And this means also, too, Paul addresses us individually at the very end of verse 22, saying that we are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That means that every single one of us, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, black, white, every single one of us in Christ are integral parts to the temple of God. If you are in Christ, you are an integral part of of the temple of God. And God isn't just building this spiritual temple for the world to just marvel at, just oh gosh, isn't that just a great temple, the spiritual thing that God's building? No, he intends to dwell in this temple, to dwell with his people. This points us forward to the future hope that we can all have in new creation if we believe the truths of the gospel. But more than that, God dwells among his people in the right here and the right now. This is why we believe as a church that all followers of Jesus are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That as we gather here also too, as a church on a Sunday morning, God is among us in a special way, doing the miraculous work of reconciling us to himself and to one another. See, this glorious truth is hard to overstate and exaggerate. Just how amazing this vision is of reconciliation of those previously alienated, now united forever and brought home by Jesus. See, what's being established by Paul here, that that what Christ has done is a new society that God has brought us into being. It's nothing short of a new creation, a new human race, a new uh, whose characteristics are no longer alienation, division, and hostility, but reconciliation, unity, and peace. See, the church, the kingdom that Jesus rules, and the family that he has brought together in the temple that he is establishing and building, this is the new society that Jesus rules and loves and that he lives in. See, in light of this truth, if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, you can get in on this. I know that the church has made mistakes. I know that the church may have failed you in the past. Maybe the church has been a part of your story of brokenness in your life. But our society likes, likes to talk a big game when it, contend, when it comes to acceptance and inclusion. Not saying the church has a great track record here, but at the end of the day, followers of Jesus are bound together through thick and thin, not because of our strength and our ability to hold it all together, but by Jesus' ability to hold it all together. And guess what? Jesus never fails. You can take it to the bank every single time. Our God does not fail. We trust in Jesus, not because we have the ability to keep it all together, but because we trust that Jesus already has. Second, follower of Jesus in the room. I want to ask, have you forgotten your story? Have you revisited it in ways that are helpful? Not dwelling in past sin, not going to 
roll in the mire and the muck of the things that, uh, that w- once were true about you in order to feel shame or guilt, but rather remembering what was true so that you can have just amazing gratitude for what now is because of Christ. What was sin, death, our pride, our lust, our addiction, our anger, our coveting. Now, we have been called out of those things into the beautiful life of union with God, union with His people, forgiveness, actually possible, and hope for yourself and others. Church, have you been grateful lately for what God has done in your life? See, I think there's a direct correlation between you remembering where you came from and what Jesus did about it to your gratitude for what Jesus has done. It changes your, the way you view yourself and the way you view, honestly, other followers of Jesus as well. So as we end our time in the Word together this morning, I want to ask and challenge you, how's your gratitude been recently? Maybe you need to ponder and sit before you come to the table for a moment, remembering what Christ has done for you, what he's called you out of before you come to the table so that you can rejoice in where you now are, grateful that Jesus has brought you from death to life, from being far away and separated to now near in him. Let's pray together. Jesus, uh, I pray that uh, all of us, as we are about to go to the table, if we are in Christ, um, that we would really reflect on our story for a moment. Uh, We would remember what you, Jesus, have called us out of uh, and what you have also called us into as part of your church. Jesus, I pray that you would um, stir in each of our hearts um, new, fresh ways that um, we feel deep gratitude for you, Jesus. Gratitude for your atoning work on the cross for us. Um, God, I pray that you would work in in us, um, have us just marvel, wonder, be baffled uh, that you have included us, um, that we being ones who are once far away have now been brought near. And Jesus, I pray that the gratitude that comes out of that um, would just flow like a ripple effect uh, through our church community, um, that it would produce authentic joy, um, that the, the gratitude would produce uh, authentic hope for ourselves and for others, um, that we have fresh eyes to see Uh, the people around us, not as just projects, uh, things to be managed or uh, problems to be overcome, but rather people um, that you are bringing to yourself. God, I pray that that we would uh, celebrate baby steps in the lives of of new Christians. God, I pray that we would continue to see your work among us as um, you do the miraculous work of bringing dead hearts to life, but then also to your sustaining work in in our lives by the power of your Spirit. Um, allowing us to say no to sin and yes to you, Jesus, and along the way see marriages restored, to see um, addicts recover, uh, to be able to see um, uh, incredible, almost insurmountable things um, accomplished in you, Jesus, because if you're the one that has gone from death to life um, in and of yourself, uh, Jesus, what is too hard for you? There is nothing. I pray that we would have hope in that and um, that you would produce gratitude in our hearts for what you've done in us and already bringing us from spiritual death to life. I pray that in your name, amen.